1: Hi, I'm Nyla Boodoo, host of One Big Thing from Axios.
0: Every week, I talk to leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. We're not going to be changing the world if we don't take some risk. We can't live
2: burying our heads. This technology is here.
0: We're going about it the wrong way because we don't know the stuff to go for. Interviews, ideas, and context, all in 20 minutes or less. That's One Big Thing from Axios. Find us every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, our policy is we're giving $55 billion away over the next three years, which is what the United States committed. However, we have nothing in place to monitor how that money is spent. Why? Oh, we don't want them to think that we are intruding in their business. No, we should. If you're putting $55 billion in something, you had better be on guard and at least you want to understand how that money is being spent. There's nothing wrong with that. What could
2: go right? I'm Zachary Carabel, the founder of The Progress Network, and I'm joined as always by Emma Varvalukas, the executive director of The Progress Network. And we are hosting this podcast, What Could Go Right, which is a series of weekly conversations, sometimes with members of The Progress Network, sometimes with other people whose voices might be prominent or might be less so, but all of whom are animated by a spirit of how do we deal with the problems that we have in the world, from a place of non-outrage and non-fear, but instead from a perspective and a sensibility of how do we solve the problems that we have, how do we look them in the eye so that we can create the future of our hopes and not the future of our fears. One area that we don't look at, we being the Western world, um, I'm American, Emma's in Athens, but you know, half American, half Greek, the Western world in general, doesn't pay that much attention to Africa. And when we do, it's almost always negative. It's about political dysfunction, it's about resource extraction, it's about uh, societal either collapse or poverty or disease. Africa as a generalizable story, particularly Sub-Saharan Africa, is almost always a negative one in the Western world when it appears as a story at all. This is like a whole swath of the world That is certainly one of the few places showing still substantial population growth and also represents a substantial portion of the world that we live in and will increasingly be that in the 21st century. So, Emma, please give us the introduction of who we're going to be talking to today.
1: Sure. So we're going to be talking to Ebenezer Obadare, who's the Douglas Dillon Senior Fellow for Africa Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. And before joining uh, the Council on Foreign Relations, he was a professor of sociology at the University of Kansas, Lawrence. He's also a senior fellow at New York University School Professional Studies Center for Global Affairs and a fellow at the University of South Africa's Institute of Theology. So I am very excited to talk to Ebenezer about the Nigerian presidential elections and all things sub-Saharan Africa.
2: Ebenezer Obadare, thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. Thank you. So uh, let's talk first about the Nigerian elections, because you are certainly an expert on that, have written a lot about that. Uh, Nigeria is the largest country in sub-Saharan Africa. It's the largest country in Africa by population, and I think probably the wealthiest by GDP, just in terms of oil revenues. Um, but it's also probably one of the more dysfunctional countries in a. Neighborhood where there's a lot of competition for most dysfunctional. The United States, by the way, gets gets a shout out for most dysfunctional as well. So I'm not I'm, I'm not singling out Africa here. Uh, what do you make of the elections? I know that's an incredibly broad question, but I think for a lot of people might have been aware that there were elections held. Um, maybe they were aware that there was a third party or a third candidate in Obi who was seemed to have the reformer mantra, oh my God, this is going to be a brave new world, and the youth of Nigeria are going to sweep in a new breath of fresh air, or at least that was some of the press, and of course that didn't happen.
0: So uh, thank you for having me. There are maybe two answers to that. Um, And my sense is always, it depends on how you're approaching the election. If you are thinking in terms of just one single electoral cycle, this just concluded election, Then you are, obviously you have a lot to, you know, you have a lot on your mind in terms of irregularities, flaws, and all kinds of things that could have gone better. Um, Does that mean the election overall is not credible? I think I'm in a minority, you know, in this, in which I still think that overall, all things considered, I think we had a credible election, an election that you know had so many flaws and wrinkles that maybe might have been avoided but yeah we we'll, you know I'm one of those people who say look we'll, we'll take it so but if you put the election itself which is you know what I always encourage people to do if you put the election in the overall context of all the elections that Nigeria has had since the inauguration of the fourth republic in 1999 and within the broader stream of the Nigerian political process, then all of a sudden things don't look as gloomy as they do when you think about a single election. And I'm, 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 I'm saying that because I I think the worst time, probably the worst time to look at any election, even in the most advanced you know, economies is right after the election, right? When your team has lost, you're not thinking very clearly. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying that because I also, I'm also into sport and all of that. But once you put that loss in a bigger context, you start thinking, well, maybe there are lessons you know, to be, to be learned here. Maybe things are not as bad. And I'm saying that because I think that once the dust settles on this, once people calm down a little bit, either on the side of those who have won the election or those who, who, who think they've lost the election, I think people will realize that The Independent National Electoral Commission, which is the body in charge of organizing elections in Nigeria, the political process, the party system, that something significant happened here, that we have a lot to, to celebrate as a country. It's important to put the election itself in the context of the material circumstances in which it was held. And what am I talking about? There was widespread insecurity in the country. You know, people feared for their lives. There was a misguided currency redesign policy implemented by the Central Bank of Nigeria, which set people's teeth on, on edge. Days before the election, angry young protesters were blocking highways, were ambushing banks, were burning down banks and financial institutions in some places. Such was the frustration of, the legitimate frustration of these of this young people. So, there were so many reasons why the elections should not have been conducted peacefully in the first instance. So if you think historically about where Nigeria is coming from since 1999, and if you think about the specific context, the, the, the sociological material context in which the election was held, then you have to say that there's something positive to take away from.
1: Ebenezer, I want to dig in a little bit more to some of the things you just said, one of them being the, the expectation versus the reality. You know, I understand that you're fairly critical about how the Nigerian election was framed in Western media in the run up. Um, and I myself was was guilty of this, that I saw these reports that were, oh, we're so excited, like, Obi, oh, be this uh, maverick guy coming in and he's going to shake things up. And then when he didn't win, there was that disappointment. But also, maybe you could specify a little bit about the positive things that happened anyway, even though the expectations uh, were not lived up to.
0: Yeah. So thank you. So first, let's, let's quickly talk about, about the, OB, the obedient phenomenon. And if you have further questions about that, I can, you know, I can sort of speak to those questions. And, and, and I have to start with that because I hope it doesn't get lost in whatever I've written or I'm going to write or whatever I say about my admiration for the obedient. And I think I must have written somewhere that this is the single most important youth-based movement in Nigerian history.
2: By the way, for those for those who don't know, the the
0: uh, was what
2: the followers of Ob were called, right? Yeah.
0: And I've also, you know, my argument has always been that Ob himself is just an eponym for that movement. That the movement was already there, the hmm. energy, the fundamental sentiment galvanizing that movement was always there. But I think the question for me as an analyst from the get go was is there a chance for Obi to become president? And I did not see that. And all my attempts to persuade my friends in the Western media that you are in a bubble, what you are saying is not correct. So I wasn't surprised that Peter Obi be lost. As a matter of fact, I predicted it. Having said that, and this is the second part of your question, having said that, certain significant things happened. And I'm just going to reel out a list here. Peter Obi won Lagos state. This is not trivial if you look at the history of political contestation in Nigeria. Lagos is Bolatinumbu's political fiefdom. He was governor there for eight years, between 1999 and 2007. And since then, he has handpicked every governor. This is his political base. This is where he's able to say, look, look at what I've done. He points to Lagos. Consistently, as an example of how you can begin to have the foundations of a modern technocratic state in not just in Nigeria but in, in Africa, he lost. The president of Nigeria, Muhammadu Buhari, lost Katsina State, his home state. The All Progressive Congress (APC) governors, many of them who were family behind Ubu, lost their states either to Peter Obi or to Atiku Abubakar the three candidates won 12 states each right so you sort of begin to see look if you are and i'm seeing all this to, to sort of underscore the point that if you're an obedient if you're peter obi if you are one of those people whether obedient or not who are disgusted with the state of things in nigeria and you want a change there's a lot to celebrate about this election a lot
2: it's interesting you know i am um, i've concluded, given my own predilections and having supported lots of Democratic candidates in the United States over the past, really, 10 years, um, that there's a high probability that outside my own area in New York City, that a candidate I like will almost certainly lose, right? Like my, <laughs> my whatever appeals to me, you know, it's like the the president in West Wing uh, is basically not in sync with most people, but is very in sync with a kind of a, you know, urban technocratic media uh, media educated group. And then you develop this kind of tunnel vision where you're like, oh my God, this person's amazing and incredible. And and you realize that's not exactly where people are at all. And it's not how they vote. And I mean, you had some of the same phenomenon with Obi, right? He had a youth movement. There was a lot of enthusiasm. Yeah. I guess the flip side, and this is more broadly a question. I mean, you you had an interesting um, you cited an interesting statistic and in something you wrote recently in one of your blogs about there's increasing skepticism of democracy in the Western world, Europe, the United States, you know, France. Right? We're we're talking about this now. There are massive protests in France over pension reform, but there's also just disenchantment with the political system, disenchantment with democracy. You've written that in vast parts of sub-Saharan Africa, even though democracy is, um, you know, questionably functional, there's huge support for it, uh, certainly among younger people. Yes. And this may be an easy question to answer, or maybe an incredibly hard issue to solve. But if there's such support for democracy, why isn't there more functional democracy?
0: Um, so again, there is, there, that's no paradox. So let's start from where we left off. The obedient are a perfect example. That movement is a perfect example of my point about continued belief in democracy. The obedient want a more a Nigerian democracy to be more responsive to the needs of the people. They want the old guard out of the way, they want less corruption. That's disgruntlement with the democratic system you have in Nigeria, it's not, this is not just Nigeria, right? In Eswatini, young people have been at it for three or four years. They want the monarchy abolished. The important thing I don't want us to lose, and this might pertain to some of the questions that maybe we'll discuss about Russia, China, you know, that we broached earlier, is that when people are disaffected this way, they are not saying that they want democracy to end. They are not saying that they want military rule to come back in the Nigerian context, for example. They are saying that they want democracy to live up to its billing, to live up to its name, and to deliver results for ordinary people. That's a pro-democratic, not an anti-democratic sentiment.
1: I mean, One more question about the Nigerian election, I think, before we open up into Russia and China. You had written also about... Obi kind of bringing in this new potential era of third party. I was trying to frame that like in the U.S. context. So would it be fair to say that what happened with the election just now would be like if in 2024 Andrew Yang's forward party wins like a third of U.S. states out of nowhere? I mean, is that a fair comparison or no?
0: Andrew Yang is what you might call a political outsider. He's not really held any important political office, you know, and all of that. The two-party system in the United States is because American democracy is older. We're going back to seventeen 70, seventy-six. The two-party system is more entrenched. The Nigerian system has been a two-party system since nineteen ninety-nine, but there has always been an understanding that it's a much more multipolar arrangement. Mm. That's number one. Two, young and Obi, we can't. Compare, we shouldn't compare. Obi, and this is one of my main grouses with the Western media, Obi is not an outsider. Not by any stretch of the... Not, there is no way you splice the word outsider that oh, this is Peter Obi's third political party in the last decade, right? So it's a much easier. He's, he's a member of the establishment. I'm not saying that to knock him. These are just facts. And I think that... Part of what happened, why people like me got frustrated, was that in the hurry, people rushed to beatify Peter Obi, and in that rush, elements of his, of his biography were basically deleted. And I think that you don't get a, a, a fair or a full picture of either Obi or the political party joined, you know, if you, if you remove those elements of his biography.
1: Hey, it's Emma. They say you should learn something new every day. It's good advice, but with so much to do in your daily life, how are you going to make the time to learn and stay curious about our world? Well, with Everything Everywhere Daily, you can easily make that goal an actual reality. Everything Everywhere Daily is one of the world's most popular daily education podcasts and a top three history podcast. In about 10 minutes, you can learn something new every day. The show covers history, science, geography, mathematics, and technology, as well as biographies from some of the world's most interesting people. Fans of the show are so passionate that you even work to join the Completionist Club, the group of dedicated listeners who have listened to every single one of the show's more than a thousand and counting episodes. All of the episodes are informative, interesting, and best of all, always under 15 minutes. So go ahead, learn something new every single day with Everything Everywhere Daily find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The government of Kenya pledged to end gender-based violence by 2026. The Ministry of Health in Uganda is trying to eradicate yellow fever. It's ambitious to make these kinds of pledges, but it is much harder to achieve these lofty goals. Are these leaders really delivering on these promises for women and girls? Tune into a new season of The Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women, a podcast from Foreign Policy. As reporters across Africa meet courageous women holding leaders accountable in various sectors, including healthcare, startups, and the government. Listen to Hidden Economics of Remarkable Women wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Walking down a path where enslaved Africans once marched in chains, headed to America, is the United States' first black vice president, Kamala Harris on a visit to what was a major hub for the Atlantic slave trade in Ghana. I too believe that we must remember history. It should teach us not only about our past, but about our destiny and our future. That we must learn from it in a way that we make the ancestors proud. More than just a charm offensive, Harris is on a week-long three-nation tour of Africa, an attempt to counter the growing influence of China and Russia on the continent. Russia has signed new military cooperation agreements with 17 African countries. China is the continent's largest trading partner with $2 trillion in investments and construction projects. As the world has evolved over the past 20 years, 25 years, two things have been broadly true right you've had increasing dissatisfaction but you simultaneously have had more people around the world certainly numbering in the billions if you add in those parts of china india brazil other parts of latin america and certainly parts of sub-saharan africa that where people have had significant material gains i mean that said do you have any particular view on you know where we're kind of heading do you have twinklings of optimism?
0: Yes, the optimism is there, but it's it qualified. It's not just, oh, I'm, optimi- optimi- I'm an optimist just for the sake of, of optimism. So let, let me pick on three, two or three countries as illustrations and see if we can have, you know, maybe a, a common insight from them. So think about Nigeria. Nigeria became a return to civil rule in 1999 after decades of, of military rule. And since then, we've had several elections at, you know, at the local, at you know, regional and national levels, all of uneven you know, on, on, on quality. But my, my, again, my sense there is always keep in mind the long duration. It's not just one electoral cycle. We're talking about a long you know, a process. Much more important, I think, in a place like Nigeria, what you're looking to do is put the foundations in place for a robust public sphere to the extent that complaints are still being heard, to the extent that people have have the outlets to ventilate their grievances, to the extent that they continually talk about these things, what you're doing, whether you like it or not, is to be putting those foundations in place. And that's where my optimism is coming from. As long as there's no military intervention, as long as all the participants in the system allow the system to work itself out, to smooth out those wrinkles. Look, And I say that, one, because so there's a lot of complaint about the Nigerian judiciary, and there's a lot to complain about in the Nigerian judiciary. But well, there's no deuce ex machina that is going to come into Nigeria and fix the judiciary. To the extent that Nigerians have identified the problem with the judiciary and other central institutions of democracy, then it's up to them to fix those institutions. It takes time because a lot sets in over time. We had military rule, we've had nepotism, we have structures of patronage that are deleterious to the democratic system. But if you don't have the time to, to do all the things you have to do, then you're not going to get all the right answers. So current frustrations aside, I see hope that the more people are able to invest themselves emotionally and intellectually towards looking for the resolution to those, to those issues, the greater chances of success the country has. So that's Nigeria. Look at Kenya. This time last year, there was a lot of apprehension about how the elections in Kenya might turn out, but there was no bloodshed, right? Only in the last two weeks, you know, there have been protests all over again. The loser of the election took the winner, Ruto, to court. To, 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 to court. The Supreme Court, the Kenyan Supreme Court ruled in favor of, of Ruto, And the country just continued. See, it, it, Nigeria continues to model along. Kenya continues to model along. It, you are going to have to get to a point where the, the muscles, the, the democratic muscles are strengthened. There is enough institutional memory. South Africa is, 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 is in a different situation. I think most people will agree that, since the transition to, to, to multi-party democracy um, in 1994, that the country has not been in, in a good place. The ANC has massively disappointed, and uh, which is why you have you know, people like Julius Malema, all these people outside the system saying, look, you need to redistribute wealth. you need to make the system more accountable. To, this, to the extent that all those people are saying those things, what they are saying is they want the system to be more accountable. As long as nobody is saying, actually, we want to abandon democracy itself, you know, we want a version of what you have in, in Uganda, for instance, which I personally do not recommend, or you have a version of what you have in Rwanda, which I personally do not recommend because of my own you know, where my own sentiments lie, I still think that the future is bright. And, you know, maybe just to, to, to draw a line on, on that. Just think about if you look at the obedience, if you look at young people demonstrating in Kenya, if you look at, you know, uh, economy volunteers or what do they call the Says South Africa. These are young people always between the ages of 18 and 35. It means that the more you get young people invested in the system, the more they are agitated about all the wrongs in the system, the more they want to do everything within their power. To fix the system, I think the more optimism that people like you and I should have about the continent's overall chances.
1: Talking a little bit about the U.S.'s role in this, I'm curious where you see the U.S. and the country's approach to Africa fitting in. Because it seems to be, and you've written about this, a bit of a, a change in temperature or change in approach. We're recording this in early April. Kamala Harris just finished a trip there. Biden's talking about he might go to the continent, which would be the first time the U.S. president has visited since 2015. How do you see this? you see it as new and noteworthy? Do you see it as more of the same?
0: So the the background to this is probably what we want to emphasize, which is the visits themselves, you know, the latest being the visit by Vice President Harris, they're not taking place in a vacuum. They're taking place within a particular context. The, The fact that China's footprint is getting bigger on the continent, the fact that the Russian sphere of influence, especially through the Wagner Group, appears to be expanding. And the, the the legitimate worry that the United States might lose ground to you know all these these other countries operating on the continent, and it's not just these traditional you know big powers. India, you know, is 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 making more friends. In on the continent. Turkey is making inroads. Um, these are countries that have always been there, but that have been emboldened by the fact that there seems to be this geostrategic vacuum that has emerged over the last decade or so on the continent. So where I fall on this is this. So th- th- there are maybe a couple of things. It's important, and I've written about this before, it's important that the United States takes Africa more seriously, gets its act together, Invest in Africa, um, not just because it's good for the United States, but because it's also good for for uh, for Africa. It, it, it's a win-win. However, in doing that, we have to be extremely careful. And I say that because it seems to be a, a consensus building around the idea that in order for the United States to regain its foothold in Africa, it needs to play the Chinese game. I'm in a minority, you know, when I'm when I say that would be a mistake. Um, The United States should not be China 2.0 in Africa. The United States should do everything within its power to emphasize the ideological difference between itself and countries like China and Russia. The United States is not a perfect democracy. I've lived in the United States since 2006. I have enough evidence to illustrate what I just said. However, However, it still remains a beacon for all countries around the world that are trying to rally around the idea of fundamental human rights, political liberties, freedom for all, freedom to trade, separation of powers, all those good things. Again, the United States itself is struggling. And, you know, again, I want to underscore that because I don't want people to think, oh, does it still realize we also had January 6th in 2021? I know all those things. I know of all the things in, in, in American history. But for good or ill, this is still the only country that people want, people run to, you know, for soccer, for security, whenever there is danger. If the United States plays the game in Africa, the way China is playing it, the United States is going to lose. Because at the end of the day, people will then say, what's the difference between you and China? You're giving me money for for infrastructure. Well, I also take money from infrastructure. And I'm I'm emphasizing that point because, you know, people then say, well, You can't be teaching African countries, you know, about about human rights. You can't be teaching those countries about liberty. And I say, no, you should. And you have to. As I wrote in one of my recent pieces, there is nothing African about human rights abuse. The United States and its Western allies have to approach this with exceptional moral clarity. It is one thing, look, we have to admit that we've made mistakes in the past, but you don't then go in and say, I'm just going to let you do things as you want, take all the money. You will be abandoning all the critical sources, the obedient, social movements, every group, community in Africa that is under the cosh from irresponsible African leaders. And I can reel out the the names of those leaders. You know what I'm, I'm talking about. The United States should take the side of Africans against African leaders. Regimes do not last. They ultimately, even the most dictatorial, the most tenaciously dictatorial regimes, they run out. But societies continue. The wind right now in Africa, in Kenya, in Eswatini, in Nigeria, in Egypt, even in parts of West Africa that have experienced military interventions, young people want representative government. They don't want to be shot at by soldiers. They don't want to be killed by the police. They want separation of church and state. Right now, the obedient are saying, we want the court system to be transparent. Those are universal values. They are not African values. They apply in Hong Kong. They apply in Singapore. They apply in Australia. Africans get that. It will be a a monumental tragedy for the United States to go in and say, well, we don't want to step on toes. We don't want to teach Africans about human rights. No, Africans are interested in human rights. The United States should take the side of Africans. This is a very rare opportunity to say, we're not China. We're not Russia. We're not perfect, but we're different.
2: So the challenge here in that, And as much as I find all of that unarguable and admirable, there's also the flip side, which is what that creates in terms of a power dynamic. And also, speaking, obviously, as an American, that it creates an internal image of the United States as a beacon of freedom and liberty, which has certainly been true, but obscures a lot of our own internal ability to be self-critical, meaning the very act of going into the world and acting as the both the arbiter of and the champion of all these values. Um,
0: you know is what? That it often,
2: it's often at odds with our own ability to deal with our own issues, right? Because we then start believing our own language of we are the representatives of all of these ideals. And you know and then it comes with money and then it comes with power and then it comes with coercion right so it's one thing to say well we should be we Americans should be approaching our engagement with other countries with these values inextricably linked with our actions in a way that's quite a contrast with turkey or with china and also with india the, the, the problem is then, it's not that we just go in and articulate those values, it's then we begin to micromanage the way in which those values translate into policy. So, we're going to give you money, but that money is attached to the following set of things. And, that, and the legacy of that has been, I think, uh, maybe mixed, but largely a failure. You know, our ability to kind of dictate via income and we're doing some of the same thing when it comes to climate policy, right? You go into countries that have no source of energy but may have some fossil fuels, and say, "Well, <laughs> we'll give you money as long as you don't burn coal." I mean, coal's not really the issue in Africa; it's more fossil fuels. I mean, it's more uh, petroleum. Um, you know, then and, and uh, so that's my pushback to to what you're articulating.
0: Yeah, I, I can respond to that. There's a lot. There's a lot there. So, number one, I I think it's. It's important that we we are very realistic about this. There will never be a world in which somebody gives money and doesn't attach conditions to it. You don't go to Capital One and say I need $10,000 and Capital One says give me your bank account it's there see you soon. <laughs> that would be nice though. <laughs> I would Speaking love of that. I could go right. <laughs> <laughs> so I I think you know people sort of have this notion that The United States should financially support African countries, but should demand nothing in return. You know what? I find that condescending. You only do that to kids. Oh, you want 10 bucks? Oh, yes, 10 bucks. Just just go. There's nothing wrong with holding African leaders accountable. That's what the obedient wants. I keep coming back to that. Don't forget that. That's what people in Africa want. They need the support of countries like the United States, European countries to hold African leaders to uh, to, to account. They are frustrated that China and Russia are doing business with African leaders and oiling the wheels of political patronage in Africa and deep, you know, putting resources at the disposal of African leaders and their immediate families, without recourse, you know, to to, to Africa. So, so that, that's number one. Number two, you know, Isaiah Berlin, the philosopher, you know, had this had this famous saying. You know, out of the, the this crooked timber of humanity, nothing straight shall ever be formed. There's not there are no human institutions or countries or states or coalitions that are perfect. Right, And the United States should not apologize for being imperfect. However, it should also not arrogantly say, hey, well, I'm not, I'm not perfect. Okay, that, that's about it. What we should do, and this is also good for the American system, like as we continue to hold other countries accountable, that we hold ourselves accountable to, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. <laughs> There's nothing mutually exclusive in saying, we're holding African countries, we should, you should have transparent elections, you should have you know, reduced corruption, you should have investment in infrastructure, public education, and all those things. Because those people can then also turn the mirror on us and say, we want you to also be true to your word and do the same thing. So I, I, that will be my own gentle pushback to your pushback. Um, there's nothing wrong in insisting that if you are giving an institution, a country, a government, a leader, if you investing in a particular thing, you want to see how that money is spent. What will you say about the United States? You know, especially think about what the reaction in the United States will be that right now our policy is we're giving $55 billion away over the next three years, which is what the United States committed with, you know, from the U.S.-Africa you know, Leaders Summit. However, we have nothing in place to monitor how that money is spent. Why? Oh, we don't want them to think that we are intruding in their business. No, we should. if you are putting $55 billion in something, you had better, be, careful. You had better you know, be on guard and at least you want to understand how that money is being sent. Spain. there's nothing wrong
2: with that. I have to say that was uh that's given me something to think about in a w- with a perspective that I I have not heard stated as eloquently, passionately and convincingly. So I want to thank you for that and I want to thank you for the conversation. You know, again these are um These are not conversations I think are had as much as they ought to be. To be fair, everybody is provincial, right? Everybody in the world is provincial and pays attention to what's going on, proximate to them and not really to what's going on in the world at large. So so to some degree, you know, Americans, Western audience, we're never going to pay the attention to Africa that we pay to our local politics, our local needs, et cetera. And that's true everywhere in the world, Right. (laughs) That being said, I'm very glad we've had the conversation. I hope people have uh, taken something from it and your eloquence and, and passion are most appreciated. Thank oh, you. Thank you.
0: Yeah, First optimism, second eloquence. This is, you've made my day. <laughs> good, <laughs> thank good you, Amazer. <laughs> thank you. I appreciate it. Have a good day. Hey, everybody. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. We're the hosts of Political Breakdown, a show that pulls back the curtain on the people and forces driving politics in the Golden State from KQED in San Francisco.
2: And now, ahead of the 2024 election, we are bringing you even more. More conversations with the top movers and shakers at the state capitol and in national politics. But
1: the dyslexia was the greatest gift that ever happened to me. Nothing was rote, nothing was linear. I had to work
2: around things, work differently, see the world differently. And I say that to young people and say, know how important your participation is. And I think it's the time for this generation to put forward new voices. More reporting with analysis. It's been a very good session for organized labor. But hot there was labor summer. Hot labor summer. It's turning out to be a nice fall as well. More politics with personality. I've sweat election day my entire life. Right? <laughs> 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 we, we hear that. <laughs>
0: Political breakdown daily.
2: Every weekday, we'll break down what's happening and why it matters.
0: With news that informs, surprises, and maybe even inspires you. Political Breakdown goes daily, starting January 8th.
1: So as you mentioned, that was a really passionate conversation. It's funny because Ebenezer was saying this is the first time anyone has declared me an optimist, but I felt through the way that he was talking that he was very optimistic, actually. Maybe we should have asked him a little bit more about what he was pessimistic about. And the other thing that I found interesting about it was that he had a very positive view, and we didn't talk about this explicitly, but implicitly, there was a very positive view of anger and frustration and volatility as a as a, a lever for movement and as a lever for change. And, you know, this is one of your classic questions, I feel like, that we talk about on the podcast, which is how useful is that? And he seemed to think that in at least Nigeria right now, maybe some other sub-Saharan countries that it's very, very useful or could prove useful in the long run.
2: Yeah, we probably should have done a better job in these conversations distinguishing between anger and rage. Mm. or anger and outrage because I actually think they are they may be linked on a spectrum but they are meaningfully different. Um anger can be very positive, you know, it's a it's a way of alerting yourself and other people to hey, pay attention, right? This is an issue. Wake up. Um rage tends to be more destructive and outrage just kind of feeds on itself endlessly without any particular outcome. So uh for those of you who uh, avenue or if you Google him. He does have a really interesting piece about what anger represents in the piece in the context of Nigeria. You know, basically saying sometimes people have just had enough. They've just had enough. And that the anger is at times a representation of we've had it. Uh, And we want something to change, which I do think is different than rage. You know, it's not people going and burning stuff in the streets. It's like, hey, come on, enough.
1: Yeah. And it maybe it depends on the enormity or legitimacy of the problem we actually we didn't plan this but i have a quote from that piece that you just referenced and i'm going to read it because it's really nice in case people don't google ebenezer said what cannot be denied is that anger is often the last recourse of ordinary people the only means through which they can express their humanity and he talked a little bit about that uh on the podcast we didn't fully get into it but some of the central bank stuff in nigeria people literally can't access cash. Uh, so right. the, the piece starts with this woman going into the bank and stripping off her shirt and just screaming, which is understandable in that case if you, you can't access your money. So uh, uh, this I would f- also find
2: useful. Yeah. And he ends that piece saying, you know, ordinary people don't strip off their shirts and start yelling in the middle of a bank for no reason, right? Like that's, that, that should be an indication of things are broken, um, usually.
1: Yeah, yes, in this case for sure. Something requires this, a response.
2: In this case for sure. In in New York City on a normal day. It, Who knows? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the news of the week, shall we?
1: All right. So, we are going to start with some news in the United Kingdom. Something kind of light and then something a little bit more serious. But the light, I think, is actually will impact a lot of people in their, their day-to-day lives. Um, I'm sure everyone remembers that we've been all living under the, the tiny toiletry tyranny, and I took that from a Guardian piece. That's not my great alliteration. But when you go to the airport, things need to be 100 milliliters or less. Zachary, this might not have happened to you, but there are some women out there that have had to throw away some very expensive products because they are over 100 milliliters. Um, That's because of the foiled uh, plot in 2006 to some kind of bomb with soft drinks or something like that. So the reason why that happened is because the scanners that we've had available to us aren't able to um, scan liquid well enough. But now... There are new scanners that have come out, uh, and I've noticed this occasionally in some airports that they don't make you take liquids out of your bag anymore, and there's no requirement on the amount that you can have. So the reason why I picked this up is because London City Airport just adopted these new scanners as the first major UK airport to do so. And like bit by bit, we're probably going to see this come out around the world. But to date, only Australia and the Netherlands um, have mandated the upgrade for the scanners. So good news for sure for any listeners who might have in Australia and the Netherlands and fingers crossed for the rest of us.
2: Yeah. I've read that too and thought, you know, on the one hand it's, it's good to see bit by bit, moment by moment, a return to something resembling not security theater, um, mm. which has been a big critique of the global regime post nine 11. a lot of what we go through in airports in particular, um, has a theatrical quality to it meaning we we kind of scan for threats that are highly unlikely and we ignore a lot of threats that are much more probable you know someone blowing up a port or putting a bomb in a container that goes off of a tanker and lands in the middle of a city um so it's good to see that on the other hand you know there's a degree of it's been 22 years and and it's taken that long. Well, it's been 17 since the plot you talked about. And it's taken that long to be able to not have 100 milliliters of liquid in your carry-on luggage because of something you might do for it. So, cup half full, cup half empty, or in this case, you know, more than 100, milliliter <laughs> 100 milliliters. 100
1: milliliters full. full. <laughs> <laughs> Don't bust my bubble about this, Zachary. I'm, I'm looking I'm, forward know, to I this mean, small, a I small improvement in, in, in a more serious note. Ember, which is a really great organization that does climate research, came out with a new report about the UK's power sector. And there's some really impressive numbers here. In 2010, a third of electricity in the United Kingdom was generated from coal. 10 years later, this is 2022, we're talking about, it's just 2%, which I found really fast and remarkable. Um, And it hasn't been replaced by other fossil fuels, which is another core point. This happened because of a huge increase in wind a huge increase in solar and a drop in electricity demand. Um, So I'm curious what's going on in the United Kingdom around that.
0: Many in the energy sector are calling for the government to use subsidies to encourage investment in clean energy, like those President Biden's announced for US firms, or lose out on jobs and revenue. We were there with our thinking
1: many years ahead of the rest of the world. But this government has just dithered and delayed And those business opportunities, that investment will have gone to the US.
0: The government plan includes a wide range of measures. They're launching an insulation scheme to make 300,000 homes more energy efficient. There's a plan to invest around $300 million in developing green hydrogen as a fuel. It's claimed to be more environmentally friendly. And there's the formal establishment of great British nuclear to promote the building of new power plants.
1: There's been a um, over two thirds decrease of carbon emissions from the power sector because of this. And uh, the UK is aiming to completely decarbonize by 2035, completely decarbonize the power sector, not completely. That would be remarkable.
2: (laughs) And you've had similar decreases in the usage of coal in the United States. I mean, obviously this has been a political issue in states like West Virginia, but in general, coal usage in much of the world has gone down. I and mean, there are exceptions to that, it's, You know, going up in Pakistan, actually went up in Germany uh, in 2022 because they needed some ready source of fuel when the natural gas and oil from Russia dropped off a cliff. But in general, the trends have been away from, from burning coal and toward different forms of energy. And I think the, the UK is a, a, a sharp, sharp shift um, but indicative of shifts that are going on around the world in quite a good way.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I'm i going to repeat this point because I still think that not that many people know it. I think everybody's aware that we're not on track to meet 1.5 Celsius degrees of warming. I think people are very unaware that there are a lot of countries that have dropped their emissions. Not fast enough, but it's uh, I feel, I've encountered this a lot that people think that wealthy countries' emissions just keep going up and it's not the case. So that bears repeating. So, coming around to the United States, a little bit of an update to some of the conversation that we had a few episodes ago about the labor market. The labor market is hot, hot, hot. And one side effect of that is that the gap between white employment and black employment has nearly been erased. Um, It's at 0.3 percentage points, it's the lowest in history. Uh, It was especially wide after 2008 and uh, right during the pandemic and afterward, um, it has really almost completely closed. Um, so I'm going to tee you in, Zachary, to go back to your criticism about the Fed potentially ruining this. Let's hope that they don't, because I find some of these these closing, you know, gaps to be really encouraging.
2: You know, the Fed uh, has a bizarre thing called the dual mandate. And I say it's bizarre because it was really added in the 70s by Congress that it, it, the Fed is also responsible for full employment. And that was basically done as a nobody could figure out what to do about stagflation and high unemployment in the 70s, so they just punted and said, well, the Fed should do something.
1: While Democrats are pushing to expand the Fed's mandate to address socioeconomic disparities, our next guest introduced a bill that focuses
2: the Fed solely on fighting inflation. Joining us now, Republican Congressman French Hill of Arkansas... It's not a perfect world, Congressman. And when you think about the dual mandate, you don't have to think that long to realize that they almost seem mutually exclusive. It's almost something that can't be done. And it's asking a lot of the Fed to try to orchestrate full employment and low inflation or dollar stability. I believe the 1977 Act adding full employment to the concept of sound money made their job tougher. Because if someone doesn't set the priority, then what is the priority? And I think the priority for the central bank should be sound money and therefore price stability. That being said, it is part of their mandate. And in relentlessly pursuing price stability, i.e. fighting inflation, they seem to have sort of lost the the script when it comes to employment. And that you you should, by virtue of that mandate, have to balance those things and yeah my concern is that that's been lost that the balance is completely skewed toward inflation and price stability and completely um, downplaying the imperative of employment as a social good the 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 line that's often given in response to that is unemployment only affects those individuals who don't have a job or maybe those communities where unemployment is high but but prices and inflation affect everyone so that the greater good is price stability and unemployment is a is a harm that is limited to the individuals or communities that it harms. Uh, I think that's a an awfully morally questionable argument. Mm. Uh, it's also societally and politically fraught, which because it 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 forces you into a real world corner of we don't really care if two million people lose their jobs if inflation goes below five percent and. And then the argument is, well, over time, it's, you know, inflation will erode lifestyles and quality of living far more than 2 million lost jobs, which which might be regained in a couple of years. I mean, that's the defense of that argument. Hmm. I just think that right now you're, you're losing sight of nearly full employment with moderate inflation is, is a social good, not a social problem.
1: Yeah, I, I find that as you do not persuasive, that argument um, about it being more important to treat inflation. I mean, even just from an anecdotal sense of like, I would rather pay higher prices than not have a job. <laughs> right.
2: Regardless of what the Fed's doing, the most recent employment report in the United States, which was released on April 7th on Good Friday, showed unemployment at 3.5%. So regardless of what the, whether or not the Fed is aggressively involved in trying to bring down employment, so far that hasn't really worked. Um, it's not clear that they're going to like aggressively try to bring down employment because that would be politically totally untenable. Mm -mm. Uh, And we, you know, at least in the United States, and this is actually true in Western Europe, it's true in a lot of the world, the bounce back from the depths of COVID in terms of global employment has been far sharper and far more robust. than I think most of us would have thought even in, you know, this time in 2021.
1: Yeah. You know, this is part of what we do at the Progress Network, too, is it could have been a lot worse. And sometimes we forget to stop and and think about how much worse things could have been. And that's definitely one where it could have been worse. So well raised.
2: All right. So on that note, we're going to wrap up this particular episode. We'll be back next week. And thank you, as always, Emma. Please, those listening, we are open to suggestions and welcoming of feedback. So you can do that at theprogressnetwork.org.
1: Thanks, Zachary. What Could Go Right is produced by Andrew Stephen, executive produced by Jeff Umbro and The Plug To find out more about What Could Go Right, The Progress Network, or to join the What Could Go Right newsletter, visit theprogressnetwork.org. Thanks for listening.